And now, stay tuned for another episode of the Traumatic States of America. Welcome to the Traumatic States of America. Our main goal is to begin to heal some of the trauma we have suffered both individually and collectively. I am your host, Dr. Lori Hood, and I will be talking with people from all walks of life who have suffered trauma in its myriad forms. Military veterans, attorneys, first responders, football players, stay-at-home moms, and many more. We will hear how trauma has not only affected them, but their families and communities as we take an in-depth look at what science has to offer and what can be done to prevent, mitigate, and help recover from trauma. Today we have Cameron Shiflett, a young trauma researcher who, in my opinion, has a phenomenal future ahead of him. Welcome, Cameron. Thank you so much, doctor, for having me. It's a pleasure. You're a trauma researcher, and I'm a trauma researcher. And my question to you is, what got you interested in trauma? So there are many things that draw me to trauma, but I think perhaps the most salient of all those factors was my childhood. And I think, honestly, that might be the case for many people who dive into trauma. Um, I had a particularly interesting, if that's the word, uh, childhood that made me wonder why some people respond to trauma positively and why some people seem to shut down under it. And I wanted to understand not only how that worked, but how I could apply those principles to my life. Interesting. Okay. And so you started, um, did you start at a young age or were you just curious? I mean, how did it manifest itself, say, as a, you know, 10-year-old? Well, it definitely started at a young age, mainly because I grew up in a rather a rather traumatic household, if I'm being honest. Okay. Um, there were several factors in my life that were very difficult to overcome. And as I became older, you know, in the moment, it hurt. But I didn't quite think about it intellectually until I got older and wondered, how did I make it through that? <laughs> how did I survive in those circumstances? Right, right. Like as an adult, you get it and you look back and sit, you know, think, how did I make it through that? And how did you make it through that? Honestly, sometimes I still wonder. Um, I was fortunate. So I like to say that I had the, the dubious pleasure of having multiple parents, actually. Um, I grew up, over the course of my life, I've had five parental figures. And I had several siblings that I came to rely on and who nourished me as I grew. And without them, I'm confident in saying I would not have survived my childhood. Wow, that's a big statement. So, so tell, tell me about, yeah, tell me about your siblings and, and how, how that worked for you. So it was always uh, symbiotic, I think, between my siblings and I. I had a younger brother who I spent much of my time with, and he was my rock in many ways. He and I were very, very close. We were only separated by two years, so it was easy. We bonded over things. We fought and scrapped over things. Mm-hmm. But it was easy. Well, I shouldn't say easy. It was never easy, but it was possible to make it through because I focused on him. As long as when it was as an adult, 
you know, it's easy to see now in the trauma researcher, it's easy to see, okay, he was my way to divert my attention from all the bad happening to me. If I could focus on his well-being, you know, it was easy to ignore the things that were happening to me. So when you say he was your rock, it was sort of, he was your point of focus? Indeed. Ah, okay. Can you tell the audience a little bit more about that? Of course. So anyone who's been through a traumatic experience will know, um, especially if it's sustained and chronic, will know how much attention and effort it takes to just exist in those settings. For me, it was existing with uh, an abusive parent. Um, I had a mother who was very manipulative and controlling and hurtful. And I spent so much of my time bending over backwards, not only trying to gain her approval, but to avoid her wrath (laughs) and trying to keep out of the the war path, so to speak. And it was, it made it possible to focus and continue operating under those circumstances when I could focus on my little brother, if I could make him smile or check in and see how he was doing. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, if I could bear the brunt of her attention, it would take it off of him. Yeah, and so you and I both know as trauma researchers, that's pretty common with siblings, especially an older, you know, an older sibling to, you know, trying to draw fire, I think is the term commonly used. I'm not sure that's a technical term, but <laughs> that's the term that we use. Um, a sibling will draw fire away from a younger sibling to protect the younger sibling. And it's, it happens in sexual abuse cases as well as physical and verbal abuse, like your you know, physical abuse, I mean, verbal abuse, like you're describing. Um, and it's all hurtful. It's all hurtful. Very. Just different kinds of hurt, you know? Indeed. So at 10 or so, you said that you, you focused on your younger brother because it helped you to, to you know, think of, to, to focus on him and not on everything else going on. But plus, you drew fire away from him. And then mm-hmm. when did, so were you full-time with your mother? I fortunately was not. I can say with full confidence, had I been, I'm not sure if I would still be here today. I was fortunate to have a counterbalance in my father. So my parents split when I was very, very young. I was perhaps, perhaps two. I was exceedingly young. Mm. And when they split, they obviously separated house, households. And I spent partial custody with my father. So every other weekend was the deal. Okay. And I was so fortunate to be able to escape. It really was. It was sort of an escape to this little paradise island that was dad's house. Every other weekend, it was uh, a respite from the constant control and hurt that was the other house. And quite recently, I was having a conversation with my little brother, and we both recalled that every Saturday before, right before the Sunday where we would go back to our mother's house, we would start to feel tense. We became snappy with people around us. We were, it was a little like we were preparing for a fight. And in essence, that's what we were doing. But we never realized it until much later, how much of a sanctuary that was and how fortunate we were to have another role model to see what care and parental love looked like when it wasn't tinged with hurt or fear or anger. So you had one, at least you had one role model that was a good parental role model. Indeed. Oh, man. Yeah. So that that makes me think about something. So you said you were snappy 
you know, when you, knew you, had, you didn't know why you were snapping. You guys didn't even really realize it until later. But that, that makes me think about children in schools, you know, youth in, 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 in anywhere in our, in our communities. You know, if you see a child who is snappy or withdrawn or, um, you know, just seems to be un, reacting unusually to the circumstances, you know, I, I, I think as professionals we need to take a look at that because adults should notice that. You know, we should get it. Yeah. Could you tell us any other signs that you would think, say, a teacher or, um, you know, a counselor, anyone working with children should look for? Indeed. There are, there are so many, probably too many to go into during this talk, but there are a few points I'd like to make. And firstly, it's that children are learners, first and foremost, especially young children. They're learning how to interact with the world, and they do that by watching. And who are they watching? They're watching their parents. So when a counselor or a teacher, for example, to stay in the school setting, notices that a child is perhaps acting out physically and harming other children or are verbally abrasive with other children, I would encourage any counselor or teacher to remember that these children are learning it from somewhere. Exactly. Children are conduits of energy, so to speak, <laughs> whatever you put in, you will get out. Right. So if the child is acting aggressively or is antisocial with their peers, I can't help but think that it might be, and so often it is, a reaction to intense stress. Correct. Humans react to stress by, in a variety of ways, but the first is shutting down the social system. We become less willing to interact with the world. If the world is dangerous, if you perceive threat, you're not going to interact with the world. And a child is not going to want to interact with the world they perceive as dangerous. And if their home life is dangerous, if their parents are mistreating them, then of course they're not going to want to interact with the world. They won't trust the world. The figures they are supposed to come to for safety are harming them. Wow, right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, the whole attachment thing is very confusing too. So could you give us a brief overview of attachment theory and then maybe tell us how that's played out in your life. Happily. So attachment theory has definitely been a focus of much of my research. Um, to credit Ainsworth and Bowlby, the two researchers who really pioneered the work, um, I have observed three types of attachment in their research, and they promoted them in their theory. The first is what we all want to see, which is secure attachment. The world is a safe place. You have a safe base to return to after you explore. Securely attached children tend to trust their role models, their parents, and they feel comfortable and secure, thus secure attachment, uh, exploring the world and exploring themselves as people. However, uh, we do see, unfortunately, two other types of attachments. So broadly speaking, we see um, insecure attachment and avoidant attachment. Um, insecure attachment being the child does not feel safe exploring the world and they return often fearfully after exploring the world. They don't think the world is safe. They see threat. They perceive it more often than securely attached children. And they are often what we would call anxious. Um, and avoidantly attached children, avoidantly attached children feel neither safe in the world nor with their 
home base, so to speak, their parents, for example, they have learned that the world will not respond to their needs. A cry for help will go ignored. In my life, I have to say that I definitely experienced a fair deal of insecure and avoidant attachment to several of my parents. Um, it was, looking back, it's easy to see. It's easy to see where, oh, okay, I was avoidantly attached to this parent. I was insecurely attached to this parent. But in the moment, it wasn't so clear. In the moment, for example, with my mother, I felt afraid. I felt afraid to come to her with concerns because I felt if I did, I would be punished for not being brave enough, good enough, etc. I was very, very concerned with being perfect and not being the trouble child, so to speak. Because if I was the trouble child, if I stepped out of line, I was punished severely. My home base was not safe. Right. Now, I was able, fortunately, to contrast that with the secure attachment I had with my father. I could come to him with pretty much any problem and feel fairly safe in confiding in him. But I didn't have access to my father all the time. And that's definitely um, definitely a roadblock, so to speak, for children who are in split custody if their majority custody parent is not healthy or is hurtful to them. As a result, I started to form attachments with other adults in my life. Looking back, I can see clearly that I sought mother figures in other adults in my life. I was attached with um, several teachers that I felt safer going to and would confide in. And it happens often in children who are insecurely or avoidantly attached to their parents. You often find children attaching to teachers or other role models. They're looking for that that sense of safety and comfort that they're not getting elsewhere. Right. Well, it's a, it's a psychological need. I mean, it's, we need that. And, um, oh, indeed. And, and so it's, it's, it seems, I mean, it's normal to seek it out elsewhere. Um, so I, I want to just show the audience maybe an example And as you're delving into this. Um, so to, to sort of paint a picture of it, a child needs a primary caregiver. They're, they're a child. They need an adult to rely on. So in this situation with you and in, and lots of other children, with a parent who's not safe, the child needs the parent and, and longs to be close to the parent, but the parent is dangerous. So there's this horrible um, um, push-pull kind of thing. You can't get close. You can get close, not too close. You can get close in some ways, but not other ways. And you never know when you're going to get lashed out at. And so do you remember how that felt? Yes. All too well. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it is. It is perhaps the most. That constant tension is perhaps the most insidious and long-lasting effect I've noticed in myself and others uh, who I've encountered in trauma research as a result of having a hurtful or abusive parent. And that constant tension. Perhaps what's most dangerous about it is that you don't notice it immediately. You become habituated, which is a fancy term for used to, right. become used to this constant, this constant pressure is a good word for it. And it's the psychological strain of constantly putting up a veneer of this is how I need to act around this person to feel safe. You're constantly physiologically on. You are primed for danger. You're primed for struggle. One example for me, um, a personal example would have been my mother's paranoia around lying 
So we, my brother and I were constantly, constantly accused of lying. And if we were lying, we were often punished physically, um, very painfully. But even if it wasn't true, and even if we knew we had nothing to hide, we were constantly concerned with keeping up the appearance of always being truthful and never, ever giving the impression that we were hiding anything. And it took its toll. I was constantly very, very afraid to communicate anything with my mother that might even slightly be perceived as negative. I was terrified of not having all the answers. Because if I didn't have all the answers, maybe I was holding something back. Maybe I wasn't telling the truth, which was a lie by omission and thus punishable. And for years afterwards... Well, I was just going to say, so so it wasn't just something that was an outright um, intentional lie that she caught you in. She was constantly sort of like scanning the, the horizon for, you know, inconsistencies or something. And, and if it, it appeared to be an omission, it was a lie? Indeed. Oh, my Indeed. gosh. That's horrible. It was terrible and very psychologically stressful for a child. I wanted to be able to be unsure in my parents' presence. I didn't want to have all the answers. My parents were supposed to be the ones with all the answers. Of course, as a kid, everyone thinks, well, my parents know everything. But for me, the fear was that they did know everything, but not in the positive sense. For many children, uh, and I'm sure you've seen this in your own research, many children with abusive, hurtful parents, the fear becomes that they do know everything, that they know what you're doing, and they know what you're doing at any given time. Mm -hmm. It was not rational, but I feared as a child that my mother could even read my mind. And that if I thought anything bad, if I was at all dissatisfied with something she was doing, or if I didn't like when she hit me, then I thought she would know. Somehow she'd be able to read it on my face. And as a result, I became even more stressed and trying to hide and control my emotions. Because if she knew... You were controlling your thoughts at that point. Exactly. Oh so do you think she played into that with her manipulation? I mean, did she manipulate you and sort of trick you to make you think that? Oh, indeed. To give you another example, eventually, my little brother and I decided that we wanted to have more equal custody with our father. We had started to open our eyes to how our mother was treating us and realizing that perhaps that wasn't the healthiest main uh, way of parenting. And we had decided that we would go and apply for joint custody with our father. Not even complete separation from our mother, just more time with you. And in the midst of the court proceedings, and there was a lengthy thrown out court proceeding, she came to us and told us that she knew what we had told the judge in private. Whoa. And we were paranoid. We had no idea. We immediately suspected we immediately called our guardian and litem, who were reassigned at the time for, because we were underage. We were like, how? How does she know? There's no way she knows. And the guardian had to reassure us that, no, she didn't know. She's just playing you. Because the more omniscient and omnipresent she seems, mm-hmm. the less you can do to counter her. Right. Like most abusers, it wasn't that they were all-powerful. They just needed you to believe they were all-powerful. Mm-hmm. And they'll go to any links, any links to do that. Also, um, I'm just thinking of the, you know, the next step. So your thoughts were, oh my gosh, she knows. And then even if we only get half custody, we go back to her half time and she's going to abuse us. Indeed. Because she knows, right? Yeah. 
Oh, that's horrible. And how old were you guys then? I was approximately, I was 16 and 17 years old with how long that court uh, proceedings took. Mm-hmm. So you're almost an adult. Indeed. Thankfully. Thankfully, in that once I became 18, I was free to choose where I wanted to reside. Right. And I was able to make some more decisions. But it affected me, in high school especially. It was clear that on the outside, I was a high-performing student. It didn't, I was fortunate enough that I was able to compartmentalize my home life with my professional life. Um, But at that point, the stress began to show. And I think it's easier perhaps to see when a young child is externalizing their trauma or their pain with verbal or physical um, symptoms towards other children. But when you get older in high school, it became, for me, withdrawing. Many of my teachers began to notice that I was quieter. Whereas once I had been very confident and outspoken, the stress was finally beginning to show. And thankfully, I had a support network to check in on me. But many children in those environments don't have those. And that was Cameron Shiflett in the first of a two-episode podcast on trauma from the perspective of a trauma researcher. Cameron is a young rising star in the field of trauma research, and we are glad to have him. Also, before you hop off, please listen to our bloopers so you can see that even though we have both been traumatized, we can still have fun and we can still find joy in our healing. And today we have Cameron Shiflett, a young researcher who is researching in trauma and, in my opinion, has a phenomenal... God, phenomenal career ahead of him. Phenomenal career ahead of him. Okay. Beat. Just give him some some time to, a little space here. Today I'm with Cameron Shiflett, who is a trauma researcher and who I'm sure has a phenomenal, damn it, I'm going to say a different word besides phenomenal. Hold on. Today we have Cameron Shiflett with me and Cameron (laughs) What is wrong with me? Okay, try it again. <laughs> I think it's because it's you. Okay. Oh, Lord. It's, if we can't get past the beginning, we're never going to get anywhere. All right. <clears throat> don't worry. Once we do this, <laughs> At least I'll just start do. making all my mistakes. All right, we'll make it through. <laughs> just try to make we're it through. We're going to stumble our way through it. At least get the first few sentences out before <laughs> I have to screw it up. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Traumatic States of America. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Lori Hood, go to LoriHoodPhD.com. The Traumatic States of America podcast is produced and engineered by Band Productions at their studio in Washington, D.C.